Hello and welcome back to Hidden in Plain Sight. We're an investigations podcast for absolutely anyone who's got a role or a passion that relies on finding crucial evidence, searching for fact patterns and digging out bits of information. I'm Lily Kennett. And I'm Juliet Young and we're both investigative partners at Shillings. So what are we going to be talking about this week, Lily? I thought we might talk a little bit about starting an investigation. Um, Juliet, what are some of the things that you really rely on to get an investigation off to a good start? Okay, so one of the most important things is knowing what your client knows, which is actually kind of more complicated than you, than you think, um, partly because I think the client doesn't always realise how much they know. Um, so in some respects, I kind of regard the client as the first source that you need to interview. Um, and I think this is where, you know, the art of the investigator sometimes crosses over with how you kind of with your client management skills. Um, and the the art of the investigator is to kind of question them to fully kind of elicit all this information. Um, and actually, I had a, a, an investigation a few a couple of years back where um, we were looking into a senior staff member of a client's company who they thought or they suspected with it he was embezzling money. And they kind of said to me on the first phone call, yeah, we, we don't really know much about, let's call him Jim for the, for the sake of the, the podcast. Um, we don't really know much about Jim and, you know, we'd like you to go away and find out about him. And so I, I sat down and I kind of said, okay, well, um, you probably know more than you think. Let's let's go through it. And I started to probe. I was like, you know, what kind of car do they drive? What do they like doing? What are their hobbies? Who do they live with? And then the client came back saying, oh, yeah, I, you know, I know all this stuff. Um, and they really like rugby and they belong to this club. And I think this is who they live with. And this is what car they drive. They drive a Bentley or something like that. And so we were able to get a lot of information that provided a really good starting point for the investigation. I think you've hit on something really important there, um, knowing, you know, not not just, um, you know, what's on someone's CV, but actually having the color around them um, and how they've represented themselves. Because we, I mean, we frequently work on cases where there's a suspicion of malfeasance. Uh, and one of the number one things that you can do is sort of pick up little lies the, that someone is telling. So um, I had a case uh, a couple of years ago where someone was talking about taking on a very high profile role in connection with a business. And they'd had a number of face-to-face interviews with him and it was clearly a, a kind of a warm relationship. And they had some vetting done pretty close to the end of their process. And one of the many things that that he he told them was that he had a massive collection of classic cars that he'd recently sold um, to a major American uh, musician and sort of rap artist, and that he had founded hospitals in various jurisdictions and had huge philanthropic interests. And, you know, when, when he, the substance of his career did stack up in as much as, you know, he'd held the investment roles that he, he'd he said he'd held. But uh, when we dug a little deeper into who he was as a person, he actually seemed on a, on a social level to be kind of a pathological liar. Uh, and so they ended up sidestepping the, the relationship completely. I was going to say the other sort of two things I think are really important when you start an investigation um, 
and they 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 maybe don't sound as exciting uh, you know as 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 all that but you know i think it's really important that you to to begin with like a chronology or a timeline of the facts because that's really important for kind of understanding any gaps or inconsistencies and as you begin to kind of gather more information you can see where it slots in um, so that's one of the sort of basic tools that we all get our team to do at the beginning of an investigation. And the other thing I would like to do is kind of map it out structurally as a chart or, or even if, whether it's a kind of pen and a piece of paper or whether it's, whether it's something more sophisticated in, on the computer, but kind of understanding the relationships between the different entities and the links, um, it, it get, enables you to kind of get your head around, um, the, the facts of the case really quickly um, and begin to spot, you know, what leads you might need to follow or where you need to substantiate something or gather evidence. Um, so kind of, yeah, the, those are sort of the the three things that I would do at the beginning of an investigation is, you know, first, yeah, interview the client, do a chronology or a timeline, do a structure chart. Remember, all of these things are really applicable, even if you're not in a sort of client advisor scenario. You know, if you are, if you're, we, we frequently work on cases that are for families, you know, that there can be some very complicated family members. Sometimes you need to, to work out what's happened, maybe even in your own business. And so think about who your, who your primary sources are, who you need to speak to, who has the information. And then, you know, I really like what you said, Juliet, because I think I think when you watch um, detective programs or read novels about sort of investigators, uh, it all feels very exciting. And it's like, it's all about sort of pounding the pavement and there'll be a post-it note that has an address and you'll just sort of follow that lead. But in reality, conducting a successful investigation is is so much about um, the really boring bit. Having, a, having you... a great Excel spreadsheet. Having a great <laughs> Excel. <laughs> That's our top tip for everyone. Get really good uh, with maintaining an Excel. No, but you're absolutely right because you need to have, you know, a tab for every jurisdiction that you work in. You've got to have every every spelling of the name that you're looking at. You've got to get every spelling or iteration of the name of the business. And then, you know, when you find a new address or a new name, you've got to sort of get another row of the Excel and plug that into all your all the searches that you're doing. Um, so, so much of a good investigation is about process. Uh, and I think it's a really underappreciated skill. Oh, completely. I love a good Excel. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> I know you do. And, you know, to, to your to your point, the other thing that are really uh, mapping it out, as you say, at the outset allows you to do is to sort of think beyond your home jurisdiction. Because sometimes you can hit a wall in, in the sort of place where you're investigating and in the records where you sort of might have easiest access to. Um, and if you map it out and think about where your investigation might take you, what other places, uh, sectors, et cetera, it touches on, then you can sort of have a more complete sense of where information might be available to you. And, and I know this is a real passion of yours, the sort of difference in these yeah. I, I think definitely I would say, you know, when you're um, beginning an investigation, don't be constrained by geographic boundaries. I mean, obviously, it's helpful to kind of understand which jurisdictions you need to be looking at. But I think that something I'd say about, you know, when you when you're doing an investigation, I think two factors that are critical to being a kind of successful investigator are, you know, um, the the sort of mindset of the person doing the work, you know, whether they can think creatively and laterally, um, 
whether they're a digger, um, whether they're curious, but uh, and you need to have some sort of instinct for what might be a lead. Um, but I think being a lateral thinker and not being constrained by geographic boundaries. So because the online world isn't. And so my kind of one of my top tips um, that I tell people is always look beyond the national borders of the problem. Um, data about people and companies touches so many jurisdictions and the level of juris- uh, the level of disclosure is different in each. So um, a good investigator should be looking for ways to kind of arbitrage those levels of disclosure and use them to their advantage. Um, and, you know, one example of that are the, are the differences between public record filings um, in the US and Europe. Um, and, you know, what can be turned up about European, African or Middle Eastern entities in US case filings um, is really interesting, you know, particularly where you get sort of um, Section 1782 filings in the US or or filings under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, um, which is the the disclosure of agents representing foreign principles. Um, The other day I found um, an old divorce filing from the early 1990s and it went into so much detail about the subject's background and misdemeanors and arrest and violent behavior. It was fascinating. So, um, yeah, my top tip is is don't be constrained by geographic boundaries and and look beyond them. I think you I think you've said lots of the things that I would say, which is terrific. Um, But I would say, you know, just. um, To build on what you've said, really, um, if you're looking for something in a particular place and you don't find it there, don't conclude that it's not there. I I would say that maybe uh, remove the source that disappoints you. So if you're if you're looking for um, on land registry for ownership details of a particular property and you're hitting an anonymous corporate entity and you kind of can't seem to to follow through and make the connection to an indiv- individual, then forget about those records. They're not helping you. Um, maybe go back and search the planning permissions, you know, and you can run a site search to to look through the text on some of those and, and see what you can pull up that way. If you're looking for a particular post on social media, maybe on Instagram or, or Twitter, and you think that post has been deleted, but you'd like to recover it, um, run searches on Google that uh, remove that domain from your search process, but but still search for keywords like the um, the handle of the the account that you're looking for and some of the keywords that you you think are in the post, and you might find uh, a cached copy on Archive Today or turn up a website uh, on the Wayback Machine that captures it. You know, there's there's ways of getting to content. Um, that may have been deleted on one platform. It, may, it might be preserved elsewhere. So if you don't find it, don't conclude it's not there. I would just say, look past whatever's disappointed you and sort of try and find another way. And don't be afraid to use kind of wildcard searches. Uh, if you think you know where someone lives, but you're not quite sure of the number, just familiarize yourself with with how to search for wildcards on, on Google and sort of have a crack and see what comes up. I mean, I think your point on... Uh, having a gut sense of what constitutes a lead uh, is a really interesting one. And on a subsequent episode, we might actually take the opportunity to talk about the difference between some of the automated search tools that that are now very powerful and can return some really impressive results quickly um, and the benefit of having a a human analyst with, with a gut look at something mm. because i think there's a, that that part of the investigative market is is shifting very quickly um there are still cases 
you know, where you don't have the right keywords or, or an AI driven search engine definitely wouldn't have picked something up. But um, an analyst saying, well, that doesn't really make sense. I don't think he had, he couldn't have afforded that transaction Um, and coming at it another way sort of gets you to the answer. Definitely. We should log that for a future episode. Um, Put it on the list. I'm writing it. I'm writing Um, it right now. I, I really love that tip, remove the source that disappoints you, because I think it, it says a lot about thinking like Google or thinking like a computer. Hmm. And um, that just um, reminded me that, um, you know, when you're doing this investigative research, you need to kind of think international, you need to get your search engines to think internationally in the same way that you might be thinking internationally. So, you know, getting your, um, you know, using things like virtual private networks or VPNs to amend your IP address when you're searching and changing your browser's geolocation settings. Um, and there's some really great Google Docs that you can use. In fact, that will be a whole other podcast episode. It, it could be a whole pop other podcast episode in itself. Um, but, um, you know, knowing how to kind of use those kind of advanced searches to really drill down into kind of foreign government records. Um, I don't know if you remember, Lily, do you remember that? I, I, we had this uh, situation where we'd been asked uh, whether we could um, investigate um, certain executives from a company to see whether they had any kind of hidden relationships with um, government government in South America or the authorities in South America. And um, we managed to track down the, the visitor log. Well, we did a search and we found that these executives had actually visited the central bank of a South American country. Um, and these visitor logs were there kind of in Excel in great detail. And they kind of showed exactly what time the executives had checked in and when they checked out and who they'd met and how long they'd spent. Um, but that was a, a that was a sort of find where, um, you know, it, on the face of it, it would have been very difficult to identify. But using these very kind of precise advanced searches, uh, we were able to find it quite quickly. Um, in fact, that's a kind of classic case hidden in plain sight. It was it was yeah. sitting there, but it just you know it needed certain techniques to unearth. Uh, well, that and that's that's a really important point because I mean I think um, you know everyone listening will will have been uh, will have suffered from sort of Google fatigue uh, at a certain point in in their career as a researcher or investigator, whatever, whatever however you're practicing. You know, um, I think fa- famously, a very small percentage of people get off the first page of Google. Um, and so when you have some of these um, PDF or Excel documents that might be buried on the 12th, 13th, or 14th page of Google, um, it's really important to know what techniques are going to bring those to light faster. And, you know, I know it sounds kind of nerdy, but uh, it really matters because that, in the, in the case you're talking about, that was a tangible document that we could point to you know it was it was evidence which was important on the case that we had um and this is something we'll talk more about in investigations you know um a lot of the investigation sector is is predicated on the power of kind of sources say uh, as we as we like to say but uh, a lot of that can be hearsay and some of it can be unreliable so while there's while there's definitely a place for learning what the market knows and tapping into what individual experience people have had of, of individuals and situations. Um, it's important also to work out how you translate that to, to evidence that's ultimately going to help you. You know, you, you said at the beginning, we, we were out there to kind of prove a hypothesis. Um, and then the proof part of that is really crucial. 
So Lily, shall we summarise our top tips before we conclude? Absolutely. Um, Take it away. Okay, so, well, I think we've got five, five top tips. Number one would be to treat the person who is bringing you the problem or instructing you on the problem as your first source of information. And I think number two would be to to map it out structurally at the beginning so you can understand all the entities and the links um, and to think internationally about where to look for information. Lily, what about you? I'm going to go back to my my really dull point of have a framework to, to log your material. If you're Juliet, this is definitely going to be an Excel. But make sure you've got something that allows you to sort of temporally, structurally, in terms of jurisdiction, keep track of what you've done and what you've seen. Uh, and, you know, if you can append your primary documents to that, you know, the things that are going to be really crucial to you making the case, um, so much the better. Um, my second tip is to always be creative when you hit a wall. So if something's disappointed you, if you can't find the thing that you expected to find, take it out of your thinking, take it out of your search parameters and sort of come back to the problem fresh. Um, so much of investigation is, is about lateral thinking and, and we really can't stress that enough. And number five would be, I think, to use online tools to kind of switch up your browser and put yourself in the location that you are researching so that you get a different set of results. And that is important because the results, they, they really will be different. A lot of this stuff is, is a funny combination of, of global and local. So sort of make sure that you're covering both of those bases. Thank you for listening, everybody. And um, please leave us a review. Be kind um, and send us any ideas that you have or any questions that you would like us to answer. Yep. Any, anything you want the two of us to go to work on, to talk about on this podcast, send it in to us. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. We'll see you here next time.